be uh, taken off this week for a, a little bit of a break. I concentrate a lot of my uh, preaching, as some of you know, uh, in the, the winter and fall, and so I can have some time in the summer to get away and rest, as well as to do some study for uh, the upcoming year. I actually map out the preaching calendar for the following year, the previous summer. So I'll be working on the 2016 uh, teaching and preaching calendar while I'm away, spending some time with my wife and kids and our family back in the Midwest. And so I sure appreciate your prayers as I'm gone uh, for a few weeks. Uh, I, I know that when I'm gone, you guys are in great hands. And so while I'm gone, you're going to be treated to Rustin Rosella next weekend, who is one of our great young preachers in this church. He preached a few weeks ago, and he's going to be delivering a Father's Day message next uh, weekend on the fatherhood of God. And then Daryl uh, will be with us. Daryl's our pastor emeritus. He pastored this church, not you, don't freak out, for, uh, for, for 25 years, and uh, he's going to be with us. Dr. Tim Kimmel uh, will then be joining us too, and everybody just loves Tim when he's here. And then lastly, we're going to be flying in Lucas Cooper from Toronto. Yeah, I knew you guys would like that. And, and Lucas just is, is, is one of, a dear friend of our church. He was on staff here for 10 years. For those who don't know him, pastoring a premier church up in Toronto. And uh, he, he's going to come. And it would be interesting to see if he's got a Canadian accent yet. You know, like if he starts saying like about and things like that, then, then we'll have to tease him mercilessly. But uh, we're looking forward to having Lucas here. I am um, wrapping up a series on a 10-week series out of the Gospel of John, just three chapters, 2, 3, and 4, called I Believe, uh, looking at the things that Jesus brought to this earth to help us believe and trust in him. Fascinating. After we're done with this series, when I get back, uh, we're going to start a, another series, about seven weeks in August and September, called, I, I don't know what we're going to call it yet, I want to call it I Doubt, uh, because... <laughs> Because in the first four chapters of John, they're all psyched and excited about who Jesus is, and they're believing and trusting in him. And then all of a sudden, everything changes in John 5, 6, and 7. And the Pharisees and the crowds kind of turn on them, and they all start doubting. And so I'd like to explore the nature of doubt and what causes you and I to doubt or what keeps us from believing. And so, as you guys know, I've spent about two years in the Gospel of John, and it's an amazing book. And we're not anywhere near done. It's going to be, I've been spent two years studying, John. And it's going to be great as we work our way through it. So I, I think you're going to like that. But let's wrap this up today. It's going to be a good study. So as our venues and our campuses join us, let's bow uh, and for prayer. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for these recorded things that you have seen fit to, for centuries to make sure that we know about you that comprise your inerrant, infallible truth to us. And so I pray, God, that as we take a look at this relational interaction that Jesus had uh, with such an unlikely candidate, that, God, you would help us to understand what he was communicating to her and, by extension, us. Help us, Lord, to understand that you want to nourish us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last Monday, I was meeting a, a dear friend for lunch, and I, I tried to never be late to an appointment, so I got there a few minutes early. And it's a restaurant that I don't normally go to. It's one of these uh, restaurants. It's kind of like a Friday's thing with rich pasta dishes, fried foods, big burgers. You guys know the drill. And I'm trying to eat healthy lately. So I uh, was looking at the menu, waiting for my friend, mainly confining myself to the salad selections. And the only salad that sounded at all tasty on this menu was called the Chicken Club Salad. It sounded amazing. I'm going to read you the literal description. It said this, crisp chicken, 
bacon, egg, tomato, avocado, onions, and croutons. It didn't even mention lettuce. I thought, <laughs> that thing sounds like wonderful. But again, I'm trying to eat better lately, so about a year ago I downloaded an app to my phone that gives me the nutrition count for not just most foods, but even most restaurants, and it had this restaurant on it and uh, this salad. And I'm gonna read you, I sat there stunned as I read the nutrition count for this salad. This is right off the app. Calories, 1,602. Yeah, fat, 116.1 grams. Cholesterol, 253. Sodium, 2,371 milligrams of sodium. 80 grams of sugar, 47 grams of protein. The only redeeming factor of this was that it provided 33% of my vitamin A need for the day. And I sat there just laughing out loud, and, and I really did do this because I was waiting for my friend. I, I, I went to the, the, in my app to McDonald's, and I wanted to know how many calories were in a Big Mac. And, and I realized I could eat three Big Macs to equal this one salad, three of them. I felt like going to McDonald's. And, and, and when my friend got there, this is a true story, you guys would have been proud of me, I ended up ordering a beef patty, no bun, and steamed vegetables but all I thought about was that salad. <laughs> so here's the deal, I, and I think you and I know the answer to this, but it'll get us into our topic today. I wonder how many Americans uh, eat a salad like that and convince themselves they're being nourished, right? I mean, the salad's name is deceiving, a chicken club salad. Chicken is good, we go to health clubs, and it's a salad. And so if you didn't know any better, you would not know that the thing is the equivalent of three Big Macs. Uh, my doctor tells me that the number one uh, killer today is still heart disease, and the reason is is probably because of most Americans' diets. And you and I all know this, isn't this isn't going to be a diet sermon, but the reality is, is that you and I live in a culture today in which there are lots of people running around thinking that they're eating right or at least okay when the truth is what they're putting into their bodies is not all that good. Now, here's why I mention this. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be. I'm a pastor. But there is a clear tie-in here. Uh, from our bodies to our souls. And it's this, that just as it is true on a physical level that it's more than possible to think you're being nourished by stuff that really isn't, God says it's the same on the spiritual level. It's true. But we're going to see today as we wrap up this series that through Jesus, God wants to nourish us. I mean, he is heaven-bent every day on doing that for you and for me. The problem is, is that many people today don't get that, and they order lots of things from the menu of life and think it's what God wants for them, because it makes them feel good in the, even in the moment. Many Christians do this, when in all reality, what we're ordering is the chicken club salad of the spiritual world, and it's not very healthy for us. And I'm going to show you today that this is a lot more common, even for people who consider themselves strong Christians, than many of us would realize. Uh, so let's start off on a very positive note. Here's the main point we're going to learn from John chapter 4. And that is that God has a clear and workable plan to nourish you and me. It's true. 
that just like if you were to go to a dietitian or a nutritionist and try to get a plan for your physical body, God on a spiritual level says, I got one for you. And thankfully, Jesus has shared this plan with us when he was on this earth, and we're going to see a great part of it in our account before us today. So let's work up to this point. If you brought a Bible with you here or at our venues and campuses, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 15 as we make our way through it uh, over the next half hour. And as you're turning there, uh, what I need to prepare you for is one of the most rich, life-changing, relational interactions I think Jesus had with somebody when he was on planet Earth here and with a most unlikely candidate. And so let's read the pre-story in verses 1 through 6 of John 4. It says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, let's get our bearings straight on where all this is occurring and what is going on, because there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. You'll notice on this map here that the green is the Holy Land, or Israel, during Jesus' day. Much of it is still existing in the same way today. And I've taught you in weeks before that the Gospel of John begins uh, up here in Galilee, where Jesus' hometown is, where Capernaum and Bethsaida are on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And you might remember that in John chapter 3, he goes down to Judea in the south here, most likely by Jericho, where he and John the Baptist are baptizing in the Jordan River. And what John 4 is telling us here is that he's now making his way back up to Galilee, which is a three-day walk. But in order to do so, he has to go through the province of Samaria. Now, I got to tell you, if somebody is reading this in the first century, at that moment that they heard about a bunch of Jews going through Samaria, they would have gone, whoa. And the reason is, is think Hatfields and McCoys. Think long-standing feud. That's what you need to understand about the Jewish people back then and the Samaritans. They had a feud going back a very, very long way. In fact, it went back to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians took over Israel at that time. We called it the Assyrian captivity. And the Assyrian empire was huge. And they brought an influx of all types of foreign people into Israel at the epicenter even there in Samaria. And as they brought all these foreign people in there during the captivity, they brought their religion. They brought their ethnicity. They brought themselves to it. And in over a few centuries, what happened is that the Jewish religion became very watered down. We call it syncretism. It got mixed in with other religions. And by about 400 B.C., the Samaritans, who considered themselves Jews, built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. It should have been in Jerusalem, but they built their own one on Mount Gerizim. And get this, when they dedicated the temple, they dedicated it to Yahweh as well as Zeus. <laughs> so they had mixed Judaism and Greek philosophy or Greek religion like right together. 
And, and so that was not a good thing. And by the time Jesus came around, most Jews felt they are betrayed by Samaritans. They didn't like them at all. They considered them half-breeds. They considered them second-class citizens. And they didn't want a lot to do with them. And Jesus and his disciples here in John 4 are making their way through Samaria. And you got to believe that the more Jewish of his disciples, and there were plenty of them, were thinking to themselves, we can't get through here quick enough. But the reality is, this is a three-day journey. And so they stop in the town of Sychar. I showed you that on the map here. It's right about here where Jacob's well is, Sychar. They're in southern Samaria there. And, and, and Jesus is going to be sitting by this well as his disciples go to town. And it's here where things start to heat up. Let's read in verses 7 through 9 what happens. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. <laughs> So, so we, get the first, we get that last part there. We already said there's a feud between the Jews and the Samaritans, so we understand the backstory of that. But notice with me here that there's two other strikes against this relationship between Jesus and this woman occurring here, and that is that it further reveals to us here, and this is very subtle for some of us, but we have to see it, that she was also a woman. And you're saying, where are you going with that? Well, back in that culture, a good rabbi did not interact with a single lone woman in a public or even private setting. It just wasn't the way it was done. It was a male-dominated culture, and you just didn't do that. That would, that would be considered inappropriate. And, and further, this was a Samaritan woman, and let's remember that Jews didn't interact with Samaritans. Uh, the Mishnah, which was a compilation of Jewish commentary and writings, would get written down a few centuries after Jesus, and they say this from the Mishnah, the daughters of the Samaritans are deemed unclean from the cradle. And so Jesus is talking with an unclean woman here, and that just wasn't done. Uh, the third strike is the fact that this woman, even as a Samaritan woman, was tainted. Uh, some of you know this story as you read on, but I love how one commentator says it. Only academic guys could say it this way. They say that this woman suffered from matrimonial maladjustment. <laughs> Not great matrimonial maladjustment, which is a nice way of saying, as verse 17 tells us, that she had been married five times and she had been divorced five times, and she was now on her sixth marriage. And so what commentators point out is that the reason this gal was probably alone at the well midday is that she was even shunned by fellow Samaritans. So add all this up. You got this, this, this gal here who's a Samaritan, a woman, a shunned woman at that. And isn't this just Jesus? He sits down with her at a well, a religious well, going all the way back to the book of Genesis uh, with Jacob. And he begins a casual conversation with her and asks her for some water. And she's just as stunned as anybody else would be. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And it's here, over this simple discussion over a glass of water, that Jesus decides to share with her, and by extension, you and I, God's plan for spiritual nourishment. Let's read about what happens next, because this is the heart of the story. 
It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the well that they're at, will be thirsty again. Uh, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, Chamberlain, go back one up slide here. Uh, notice with me here, and I put them in yellow for you, that there are three phrases that you and I should latch on to because these make up the heart of what Jesus is saying and reveal to us God's plan for spiritual nourishment. And those phrases are the gift of God and then who it is that brings the gift of God and then the result, living water. So, so I guess if I was to put it in chart form, I would put it like this, that the gift is the gift of grace. Who it is that brings us the gift of grace is Jesus. And once you combine grace and Jesus in your own heart of hearts, you are now in the realm, the Bible says, of new life complete with living water and the Holy Spirit. This is precisely what God is sharing us here. You see, we know that the gift here is the gift of grace because that word gift is the Greek word doria. It literally means a free gift. Grace, we know, is freely given. It's unmerited from God. And even more, in Ephesians 3, verse 7, using this same word gift, it says this, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift, Doria, of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So linked together there, gift and grace. And then think about Ephesians 4, verse 7, same thing. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Again, Doria linked to grace. And the reason that this is so important is because God's grace is his activity, his power, his love in your life. Not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. And what Jesus is saying here is that there is a gift that God wants us to give us the gift of his involvement, his love, his activity, his movement in your life. And it's the gift of grace and it's part of his nourishment plan. But it doesn't stop there. Notice that this gift of grace comes through Jesus. Uh, go back, uh, Chamberlain, to the chart there. That this gift of grace uh, comes through who it is, Jesus, Jesus says, that is right in front of us, which is Christ. So John made this really clear early on in chapter 1. He, he said that Jesus came to us full of, say it with me, grace. Well, you guys are like, did you go to Sunday school? He came to us full of grace and truth. That's who Jesus is. So it's not just a matter of latching on to the fact that God is graceful, but also understanding that he's graceful because of who he is in Jesus. Which is why, and I know I say this like a scratch CD over and over again, but it's why we have to help our world understand that just generic belief in God isn't going to do it. But you have to believe in God as he has come to us, as he has revealed himself, and that's God in Jesus. That's the gospel. Which is why in this whole series we've been talking about why Jesus asks us to believe and trust in him. And maybe now you're seeing, because he's the carrier of grace, He's your access to God. He's the one who's going to bring God's revelation, his truth, his presence, his power into your life. And the point is, once you understand this spiritual nourishment plan, that it's all about a relationship with Christ, 
that brings his grace. Now God says you are in the realm of new life, complete with living water that brings the Holy Spirit. And you're saying, where's that? In verses 14 and, 13, 14 and 15, uh, or 13 and 14, it's an amazing description there of, uh, of what happens when you understand grace and Jesus. Essentially, Jesus says that, that if you drink that kind of water from me, then you're going to have living water inside of you that wells up to eternal life. Now, isn't that a beautiful picture? And if you read further in John 7, verses 38 and 39, it will equate this living water with the Holy Spirit, so that helps us understand it. And what Jesus is saying, that once you get grace, once you invite Jesus into your life, that the result is that the Holy Spirit now lives in you. And the Holy Spirit brings resources like an understanding of God and strength when we need it and the ability to love the unlovable and the ability to trust God when we most need it. And it wells up, the Holy Spirit wells up within us to the point that we now experience eternal life, even this side of heaven. And this is where we have to be careful because Jesus even says, and you'll never be thirsty again. Now, let me ask you, does that mean that you're never going to have spiritual longings again? <laughs> I don't think so. Does it ever mean that you won't feel dry at times in your life? I, I don't think so. Uh, does it ever mean that you won't experience even some thirst as you long for your eternal home and long for more of God? Well, I don't think it means any of that. I, I like a one commentator says it. He, he says this is the difference between permanent satisfaction and full satisfaction. What Jesus is saying, let's maybe go back to our analogy that we started with in our time here today. Jesus is saying that when you come to him through grace and faith in him, you're now drinking from the right well. You're now eating from the right buffet. And you're not going to want to go to another well or another buffet that you now have come home to God. And as you've now come home to God, in that sense, you will never thirst for another avenue again that you've now come home to God and the spirit lives in you and he's welling up within you but it doesn't mean that you're fully satisfied in the body this side of heaven you're still going to long for your eternal home again it's a permanent satisfaction that is now in you it's just not a full satisfaction but it is the kind of satisfaction in which you now know where your bread is buttered. You know where you can be nourished again by going regularly back to the well of his grace and a relationship with Jesus that has given you new life and power in the Holy Spirit. This is God's spiritual nourishment plan for you and me. He wants us to come to Christ. I believe that's what we call this series and recognize who he is who it is that is right before us, and then tap into the gift, the gift of his grace that results in the power of his spirit. And anything else, by default, is a chicken club salad. <laughs> anything else might make you feel full, but if you've ever overdosed on carbs, you know that a drop is coming, amen? You know that by about seven, you're going to start shaking and you're going to drop and you're going to go, what's happening to me? You might even go to the emergency room and tell them you're having a heart attack like a lot of men do. Something that'll happen. But the reality is, is that if you feast on Christ and his water, he says, yeah, there'll be times where you're thirsty again, 
but you'll never have that kind of drop again. He will sustain you that much. Now, we got about 17 minutes left for those of you who watch the clock. And uh, I don't usually watch it outside of football season, but I do try to be on time for uh, our message. And as I was preparing this week, at, at this point in my preparation, here's what hit me, and tell me if this isn't true. Uh, for those of you who have been believers, say, for any length of time or for a long time, if we were to let you go right now, you'd probably say, well, gosh, Pastor, that's a really good reminder. <laughs> Thank you for that. I mean, I, I feel affirmed. I feel encouraged. I'm drinking from the right well. It's all about Jesus and his grace and the spirit lives in me and he's welling up. And, 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 and you'd feel fairly good about your life. But it'd just be a good reminder and a good encouragement. Uh, but the reality is, is that I think there's more to this than meets the eye. I, I think there's more to this teaching and this story than just reminding you and I that we're drinking from the right well. I think there's a powerful challenge contained in here, complete with this woman's response to Jesus that is going to challenge you and I. And, and let me give it to you up front. Here's our take-home point. And, and that is that what this woman's going to teach us is in order to really get God's spiritual nourishment plan, you need to make a lifelong distinction between the material and the spiritual. And every day choose the latter, meaning the spiritual, over the former, meaning the material. And you're saying, what's that about? I want you to look at me one last time at this account and what happens with this Samaritan woman. Because <laughs> I find it almost comical as Jesus explains to her his plan of spiritual nourishment. Look at verses 11 through 12 and then verse 15. This is kind of a weird response. It says, a woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us uh, th this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And then go to verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, here's what we need to wrestle with. <laughs> I find it almost astounding that this woman missed the point, don't you? I mean, I don't want to be too hard on her. Lord knows she's had a tough enough life as it is. But even on my most fair day, I'm thinking to myself, really? Really? She didn't get it? I, I mean, it would seem obvious to most people that Jesus is giving us a point by analogy here. That, that he's saying, hey, you got this physical well, and this physical well, you know, uh, feeds you uh, materially and physically, and it gives you some water. But hey, I got living water because I'm the son of God come here to earth and this is water that can well up within your soul for eternal life if you would just ask me and she basically says you got water you got, where's that I man I never have to come to the well again and and you're going to give me this water and magically I'm going to have you know water for the rest of my life and and where is that water and that's her response I go really really you don't get that and, and most commentators don't really make much of this so just leave it to me to make much of that and and, and yet they do answer the question in this. They say, at the very least, this woman was obviously mired in the material world. She was mired in the here and now to the point that she couldn't even get a rather simple spiritual reality. In other words, she was failing to make a distinction between the seen, the well right in front of her, and the unseen, the spiritual world Jesus is talking about, realities and like so many she focused primarily on the scene 
with her five marriages and her new relationship and, and all the things going on societally and politically and culturally around her to the point that she completely missed the unseen when it was explained to her, when it was even opened up to her. And though some of you are thinking right now, well, Jamie, I don't do that. I mean, I recognize that there's material and spiritual, and I honor Jesus as my Savior, and I know where my well is and what I'm drinking from. I, I, I'm not sure that we are as unlike the woman as we think. And that's the challenge I want you to wrestle with today. I, I observe a lot of Christians, and I observe my own life, and I think that living in 21st century America, I think we're a lot more material in our focus and a lot less spiritual in our focus than we ever would even realize. And though we might not be as dense as this woman in the moment, the reality is, as a truth be known, we are so mired in material things that we don't feel nourished by God. I mean, honestly, if I said to you, Dave, do you have a cup of coffee? And I said... Do you have a, a river of life running through your soul, welling up each moment of each day to eternal life? You'd probably say, uh, Pastor, I think I'm a little short on that one. And, and that's the point. I, I would suggest to you that the reason is, is because in your daily world, there's such a material, everyday, here and now focus, just like this woman, that you miss the unseen spiritual realities that God wants you to tap into. Let me give you a couple of challenges why I think this is so. I, uh, I, 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 again, I'm, I've been an observer of Christian people for a long time. I've been an observer, hopefully, of my own soul for a long time. And I just want you to know, as I, as I challenge you in these couple of areas, that as the finger goes out to you, there's three pointing back at me. So I'm not, this is not judgment time. It's just let's all own it time. And, and one of the things that I've noticed about Christians today is that on our best day, of sanctification, we tend to be proud, and tell me if this is not true, of the fact that we are inviting Jesus into every area of our life. I hear Christians say that all the time, that the more mature Christians, you know, say, well, I invite Jesus into my marriage, and I invite him into my parenting, and I invite him into my finances, and I invite him into to this, and I invite him into my workplace, and da-da-da-da, and, 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 and boy, aren't I really just, I'm a serious Christian, you know, because of that. And I sit there and go, Really? Really? So, so basically what you're saying to God is, hey, Lord, I'm going to fit you into my life here. And I'm going to fit you into my life here. And I'm going to include you in my life here. And honestly, what do you think God's response is to that? I, I, I think God looks at us and says, you got it backwards. I'm the Lord of the universe. I saved your soul. I have given you a spiritual nourishment plan. But there's a significant difference between saying I'm going to invite Jesus into my life versus I'm going to make him Lord of everything. Because he is Lord of everything. And this material versus spiritual distinction is very significant, guys. Because I think as long as we're mired in the material world, focus so much on that, our 401Ks, our next vacation, what we're going to watch on TV tonight, uh, our next purchase, our next hobby, the next form of entertainment, uh, even our job and the next promotion I'm going to get. Don't hear me wrong. All good things, all things that God cares about. But if those are the things that comprise our focus, then by necessity, on your best day, you're going to invite Jesus into that world. 
And he says, I'd rather have you start by saying all that stuff is secondary. As C.S. Lewis says, all that is second things. All that is material and here and now in nature. And you're to keep it second things. And there's a first place thing, and that's me. That's him, he says. And that's what he wants to be first. But you're never going to do that unless you stop functioning like this woman here and being so consumed with the everyday things that consume you that, quite frankly, are really more of a material in nature. That's the first challenge I would give you. Uh, and by the way, I, again, I, I know this goes without saying, <laughs> but I, I battle this all the stinking time. And all I know, and I don't mean this arrogantly, is that if I as a pastor battle with it, then you guys are really in trouble. Amen? <laughs> I mean, I'm reminded I'm a Christian around every corner. I mean, I'm preparing sermons, and I'm counseling people, and I see people in restaurants, and, hey, pastor, and all that. So, you know, I'm constantly reminded of my, my lot in life and, and, and that I'm God's. And yet I, I, I battle this all the time. I battle focusing way too much on things that at the end of the day are rather non-essential. And I worry about them, and I focus on them, and they suck me dry. As Jesus told the story, it's the, the, the parable of the soils and those those weeds and the cares of the world, it, it, they rise up and they choke me out. Or how about this one? This is even worse. Jesus said, you know, it's possible to gain the whole world and lose your very soul. I mean, that's what we're saying here. And again, as Christians, we tend to think, oh, that's not me. And I'm not saying you're going to hell. But the reality is, is that it's very possible. As a Christian living in the 21st century, we become so focused on all this material crud in front of us. <laughs> and miss out the entire spiritual realm that Jesus opens up to us, a well of living water inside of us. As if that were not enough, here's another challenge that I think, again, helps put this into perspective. And this, again, is a challenge I think we have for Christians in the 21st century, and that is that most of us are tempted, even within our evangelical subculture, to focus on the here and now and forget that we are made for another place. And I'm telling you, this one's epidemic among Christians today. Hebrews 13, verse 14 says that we uh, have here no lasting city, and so we seek a city that is to come. Again, do you all understand that's by analogy? <laughs> and, and, and what he's saying here, the author of Hebrews is, is that you and I are never to see this place as our home. As Isaiah, as Isaiah says, we're like blades of grass here today and gone tomorrow. You get 80, 90 years at best, but eternity is forever. And God says we were made for eternity. And by the way, that's really good news. And the reality is, is that as Christians, we are never to get too comfortable here. We're never to see this place as our home. Uh, honestly, I mean, I, when I hear Christians, you know, they put these bumper stickers on their cars that say the good life. I go, I don't even know what you mean by that. But I hope you don't mean what you think it means because this life actually, compared to eternity, is a dump. Uh, this, this life is a fallen world in which you are constantly going against the grain as a follower of Jesus. And he says, don't ever take too much undue joy uh, in the things of this fallen world. Find your joy in him. Uh, there's a great study done recently that really illustrated this to me. It was done by Duke University Divinity School. And you guys are going to love this study because they got tired of hearing Christians say that the new choruses are really shallow and the old hymns are really rich. You guys have heard that argument. And so they decided to do an exhaustive study. And they, what they did is, is that they uh, compared 112 of the top worship choruses written between 1989 and 2015 with the 70 most printed hymns that were written from 1737 to 1860. 
And they did a multi-point comparison of these top old hymns with the top new choruses to compare them theologically. And there was some good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is, is that when it came to some standards, the choruses aren't as shallow as we think. So, for instance, 39% uh, of popular contemporary worship songs written between 89 and 2015 directly address Jesus, 39%. 40% of the old hymns directly address Jesus. 4% of modern choruses mention the Trinity by name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 4% of the old hymns mention the Trinity by name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they really, it is kind of a straw man to say that the new choruses are shallow and the old hymns are, are rich. I, I think that's a little bit of an unfair characterization. But having said that, they did find some substantive differences. They found that, that the new praise songs hardly ever use sin as a verb. <laughs> hardly ever describes us as sinning people, whereas the old hymns do that quite often. And I think there's some merit to that, by the way, because if you don't know you're a sinner, you'll never know your need for grace. Amen? That was a terrible amen. Amen? amen. Yeah, that's really true. So you guys know we don't harp on you guys as, you know, a bunch of wretched sinners all the time around here. But if you don't get that, and if we don't help you understand that in the singing, then, then you're never going to see your need for grace. But that wasn't the most striking difference. Let me read to you directly from this article. They say the striking difference between the two groups is eschatology, meaning heaven. Uh, the, 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 the study argues that in hymns, heaven hasn't yet reached earth, but in praise songs, heaven is already here. Now, now, what are they saying there? I think there's some merit to this. In the old hymns that were written 200 years ago, let's all admit it, life was pretty bad back then. Three out of 10 kids would die in childbirth. Plagues would come and wipe out entire communities. Uh, economies were not very strong. Uh, people would starve to death. Weather patterns could knock you out because you didn't have electricity and some of the modern conveniences we have right now. But if there was a benefit to the previous world, uh, they sure got that this world wasn't our home. They sure got that this was a fallen world that was rather brutal and that God has planned an eternal home that's a lot better than this dump. They really got that, and they sung about that. But you see, in our modern world, with all the conveniences just in the last 100 years of modernity, where we now have electricity and penicillin and advanced health care and lots of comfort conveniences, the reality is, and tell me if this isn't true, in our praise songs, we tend to thank God for all our blessings. And in thanking God for all our blessings, what we mean is all our material blessings. Now, what the studies show is that we are dangerously close to making the vision of heaven an already here reality. And I know we don't mean to, but we tend to think that way. We tend to think that we got the good life, especially if you live here in Scottsdale. And what I'm here to tell you today is that is a very dangerous way to think. We're a lot more like that woman when we're thinking like that. Because we're overdosing on the here and now. We're overdosing on these blessings that God says big whip. So you're going to get a good night's sleep. So you're, so you're going to sleep with 72 degrees behind you rather than 86 as our forebearers had to in the hot desert. Big whip. And you're thanking me for that? Well, yeah, thank him for that. But the reality is 
is that he has a much higher vision for our spiritual nourishment than modern-day conveniences. And many of us don't get that because we're so mired. And what tells me we don't get it is that, tell me, this isn't true. When those things are taken away from us, we scream bloody murder, don't we? I mean, we act like somebody just denied the resurrection or something like that. And I hear Christians do that all the time. And the reality is, is that we need to repent of that. Now, some of you, if you don't hear anything else today, but what you need to hear is this challenge from this wonderful woman at the well. And that is that you need to make a conscious distinction between the material and the spiritual. And you need to be up the spiritual if you're ever going to get God's nourishment plan. And you need to stop trying to fit Jesus into your daily world. Try making him the Lord of your daily world and submit everything to him. And then also remember that you were made for another place and that you're just passing through. And this place is never to be our home. If you do that, this will keep you focused on God's spiritual nourishment plan that comes through his grace, through Jesus, welling up to a spirit-filled life that helps you understand God. Now, one last thought, and we're done. And this is a very encouraging thought. At the end of the day, when you read the rest of the story, and we don't have time to right now, this woman gets it. It's an amazing story. I'd encourage you to read it maybe later. We read 15 verses. Read the end of, up to the end of the chapter. So we're going to start at John 5 when I get back. Uh, th this woman uh, eventually has discussions with Jesus about the nature of God, what it means to seek God, the nature of worship and spirit-filled reality. It's an amazing discussion she has with him. She just loves the death out of this woman, and, and literally, and, and speaks life into her soul. And, and she, she thinks to herself, could this be the one? Could this be the one my soul is longing for? And the story tells us she ran back to town, and she says to everybody in town, he told me things about my life that nobody else knew. There's something about this guy. And it says that all the Samaritans went out to this well, and many believed. And they didn't just believe he was unique. They believed he was the Savior of the world. And the implication is this woman believed as well. And my point is, is that if this woman, in a rather short period of time, can be just so blind to spiritual reality, as we've seen here today, to coming to the point of belief, then you can too. And you can even go the next further step, and that is within your belief. Start to get, quite frankly, more spiritual, more spirit-filled, more focused on the spirit world. Because I'm telling you, that's where your joy is going to be found. And it will transcend everything else that you go through. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing story, Lord. You know one of my favorite of uh, the New Testament, where uh, this, this woman who... Uh, was shunned by so many, is embraced by Jesus, as he does with all of us, and, and guided into a right understanding of you. And so, God, I pray for all of us here today that as we give thought to our own life, to our own souls and the content of our thinking and feeling and living on a daily level, that, God, that, that, that this distinction between material and spiritual would ring true with us. And, and Lord, we know that life is material and spiritual. But it's so easy to get sucked into one and not the other. And I pray, God, that we would not be that kind of people. But that, God, we would lift our sights beyond all, this, beyond all the stuff going on in front of us and focus them upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.